Growing up, my family would often make the two-hour drive from Montreal to Ottawa to go and visit my cousins. Some of my fondest childhood memories were of hanging out with my cousins in the back seat of uh, my uncle's car as we drove down the highway at breakneck speeds. We would love to play these silly childhood games. Oh, we had a lot of fun. So as we would cruise down the 401, that's the highway in Ontario, the three of us would be sitting in the back giggling and laughing all the way to wherever we were headed that day. In one of these instances, my super cool cousin Liz, whom some of you have met, decided to try out a new joke that she had learned. She's like, Jonathan, say this, Owa Tagu Siam. Say it again, Owa Tagu Siam. Say it again fast, Owa Tagu Siam. The key to this game evidently was to say it fast enough that the three phonemes form into one unified sentence. But of course, it's funny because when you're just saying each individual phoneme with pauses in between, you don't necessarily see what you're trying to say as a unified whole. Well, I'll let you figure out what Liz was trying to get me to say. But the reason I tell you the story is that reading through 1 John can sometimes feel like that, right? You see, John doesn't write like Paul. At first glance, he seems to be telling us these separate, disjointed things. At some points, he's talking about belief, namely that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. At other points, he's talking about love, both love for God and love for our brother and sister. And yet, still other points, he's talking about obedience and carrying out his commandments. He's been doing so in kind of this circular Um, iterative manner. Each time he revisits the same points, he expounds on them just a little bit more. Sometimes he shows us how the two of them relate. But it isn't until chapter 5, when all of a sudden, he puts it all together in one unified piece. They are, in fact, what commentators like to call John's three tests of authentic Christian faith. And here in the first two and a half verses, he restates these three tests. He shows us how they are intricately linked to one another, that they really cannot exist in isolation. And then he gives us this bombshell revelation that this unified examination reassures authentic Christians that they are indeed genuine and that they are destined for victory over the world exclusively. Now, that's quite the claim, but it's not a mere claim. It's a promise of God. And so my hope today is that you would be first assured of your faith in Jesus, if indeed you have been born again, and that you would see this promise, believe this promise, that it may spur you on in the moment-by-moment trials of life. My outline this morning is as follows. Number one, we'll look at the authentic birth. The authentic birth. Number two, we'll look at the promise of victory. The promise of victory. And then third, we'll look at the exclusivity of victory. The exclusivity of victory. So let's dive in. The authentic birth. By now, you should be familiar with the themes of each test that John has laid out for the professing Christians. In other words, this is not going to be new stuff. These three tests are the following. They are the belief test, 
They are the love test. And third, they are the obedience test. And just like that childhood game, over and over again, John has been revisiting these tests with different emphases. Let's just do a quick review. So, for instance, in chapter 2, he describes all three of them. Obedience in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Then he talks about love in verse uh, 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. He talks about belief in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In chapter 3, he focuses on the relationship between obedience and love. Recall chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In chapter 4, he focuses on the relationship between belief and love. In chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, it says this, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so now we come to chapter 5, where we see all three of them stated together. And John shows us that they are not individual tests, but rather they are one unified piece. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 3a. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now notice the link that ties all three of these tests together is not fundamentally our own willpower, but our status as children of God. The key words are, has been born of God. In fact, he mentions this phrase or something similar four times in five verses. Those of you who are grammar geeks will notice that the word believes is in the present tense and that the words has been born is in the perfect tense. And this is really important to get right. Our belief that Jesus is the Christ, both present and past, is a consequence of something that has already been accomplished, namely our new birth. Our belief is the consequence of, not the cause of the new birth. Because we have been born from above, we exhibit belief. We love the Father, we love his children, and we obey his commands. Often we think of this truth in theological constructs, right? Such as the doctrine of election or regeneration. And for some, it's helpful to think of it this way. But John is not explaining systematic theology. Rather, he is appealing to our sense of family. And if we think of it in this sense, it is not difficult to see what he concludes. 
just the other day, we had a young man over uh, from our congregation over for dinner. Don't worry. Uh, he was on the patio at a distance outside. And as we were chatting about some of his future plans, he said something that really stuck with me. Though he was originally from back east, it was here in Vancouver that God got a hold of his heart and he had become a Christian. He went on to expound that the brothers and sisters at Christ City Kitsilano were his true friends and family. There was a distinction between the friends of the old self and the friends of the new. And I think this illustrates what John is getting at. You see, when we are saved, we're not just saved as individuals. We are saved into a a family. More to John's point, we are born again into God's family. Now, Jesus is the begotten Son of God. And so it makes perfect sense that those also born of God will believe that Jesus is the incarnate Christ. That's the belief test. That is, in other words, we believe that God, that Jesus is God's eternal, uh, only begotten Son. Furthermore, those born of God naturally love the one who birthed them. We love the Father. That's the love test. And everyone who loves the Father also loves whoever has been born of him. That is, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a deep sense of belonging to Christ's family that is unshakable in its status and its implications. In a rather tender moment, my daughter sat on my lap the other day just before her bedtime. And as she was recounting her day and we were sharing a moment together, I, I asked her out of pure curiosity. I said, would you ever trade your daddy for someone else's daddy? Would you ever trade our family for somebody else's family? She gave me the, the biggest smile. She smiled and with a confidence that could only make her dad blush. She said, nope. She exhibited a deep love for me and a deep sense of belonging to our family. Despite all my flaws and all my shortcomings as a father, and despite her just an hour ago having the normal kind of outburst that any preteen would, she was identifying herself with me and stating the very simple fact that I would always be her dad. Now, I know that for some of, the, some of you, this can hit some hard notes. Being from a parental family that is broken, I think for a long time I really struggled with how to relate to this image of being born into a, a new family. But that's also kind of the point. We are born into a new family, one that's not sustained by our own will, but by the very abiding presence of God himself. Remember chapter 4, verse 16, talks about God's abiding love. In the new birth, it is God who has not only given us new life, but he's given us new power to love that's not dependent on our own performance. So, having understood that the three things here are knotted together with, this, with our new birth, they're unified, um, 
intricately woven together with our new birth. We can look at it not just from the perspective of status as a child of God, but also in its implications. First John chapter 5, verse 2 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. At first glance, it's a bit surprising that the logic seems to be reversed from what John said in other parts. In chapter 4, verse 20, for instance, he argues that love for others is the basis on which love for God is discerned. But John's simply arguing that, again, that love for others is grounded in the love for God. When we love God, we will keep his commands, which involves loving others. Here's another way to look at it. It says in chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. And his sending of Jesus was in line with every fiber of his being to love. Just as those who are his children love the Father and love those who are his. In fact, so closely tied are love for the Father and love for his children that it's impossible to love the children of God without loving God, just as it is impossible to love God without loving his children. It's in the perspective of family that we see how these two things unite. But wait, there's more. John further shows how the link between love and obedience is also united. First John chapter 5, verse 3a. For this is the love of God. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Notice he's not saying that we keep his commandments as a result of loving God. He is saying that obeying his commandments is an integral part of loving God. This echoes what John, uh, Jesus rather said in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Theologian John Stott put it succinctly when he said, quote, Love for God is not so much an emotional experience, so much as moral obedience. And I think it's wise for us to just pause here and consider what all this means in practice. I mean, the danger of passages like these is that we only talk about it kind of in the abstract. We talk about these three tests and how they relate to one another, uh, but not actually talk about how that's lived out. And so let me talk about that for just a minute. The first practical way we can look at it is simply to recognize that there is a link. There's an undeniable link between what happens horizontally between brothers and sisters in Christ and vertically with God. Love for God and love for our brothers and sisters. Our relationships and the way we live our life with our brothers and sisters in Christ can serve as a, a good barometer to our relationship with God and our belief that Jesus is the Christ incarnate. Failure to see how this link plays out in our day-to-day -day lives, in our day-to-day -day moments, actually does a disservice to your faith. For instance, when we run into conflict with one another, it is usually more than a communication problem. Doesn't it say in James 4.1 that it is the passions at war within your heart? In other words, yes, it is a conflict between two parties. And yes, there may be communication involved. 
But behind that horizontal conflict is a conflict warring in our hearts between the commandments of God, the love of God, and the love for his children. And when we don't recognize this, when we don't recognize how, integ- how integral these, all these things work together, we get stuck. Because just like what my cousin tried to do with that childhood game, we have sought to take apart something that is meant to be whole and divorce and compartmentalize our faith into separate categories. But this tight integration works itself out positively also. One of the ways that we know that God loves us is, well, he forgives us of, his, of our sin. He forgives us of sin. But how do we um, actually, tangibly see that today? Unless you have a time machine and could, be, uh, could zip back to, you know, 2,000 years ago on Calvary and be eyewitness to the cross and resurrection, we really only witness it through reading scripture, through the words that are written in this book. Ah, but there is a way. There is a way we can see glimpses of this. And it is through how these things are related to one another. When was the last time you offended your brother or sister, sought his or her genuine forgiveness, and experienced an undeserved grace? When was the last time your spouse or your friend hurt you by saying something they did, or sorry, by something they did or, or said, and yet you loved them anyway by choosing in faith not to hold it against them? In moments like these, we experience, just as we demonstrate, the love of God precisely because belief in the incarnate Jesus, love for the Father, love for his children, and obedience of his commandments are so intricately woven. John points the way for men and women to be grounded powerfully in God's love so, and so be so transformed by God's love that it will affect community life. Here's uh, one more way that we can uh, apply this. Consider the ways in which our fears, also known as our lusts for things other than God and his children, to try to escape those fears, consider the ways our fears and our lusts for things tend to hold us back from carrying out his commandments. And how they tend to hold us back from truly believing that Jesus is the Christ and that his gospel is truly sufficient. Do you see how a lack of faith in one area leads to other areas being hindered also? Well, to the world, that is non-believers primarily, it seems that to carry out God's commandments like I just illustrated, is quite burdensome. John goes on to write in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3b, that his commandments are not burdensome. It should delight us to love one another and to do things that please God. It should. It should delight us. Why are they not burdensome? Well, Because for those born of him, for his children, our hearts have been 
rewritten so that these three things, belief, love, and obedience, are now an integral part of its function. In fact, John actually writes in verse 4a to emphasize this. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He gives us the promise of victory, which is our second point. There is, um, by the way, there's actually an emphasis um, in the original text that is missed in the ESV. So this little bit is for all you Greek and grammar nerds. Uh, The word has been born is deliberately stated in its neuter form. And why is this important? Well, it's important because by stating it in the neuter form, some translations render it for whatever is begotten of God overcomes the world. By stating it in the neuter form, John's emphasizing the power rather than the person. His commands are not burdensome because there is power in being born again. And again, this is most clearly seen in contrast. In, in, Matthew, in Matthew 23, 4, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they tried to separate out these components, belief, love, and obedience. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And if you are trying to keep his commandments devoid of belief and love, you too will find them burdensome. But Jesus doesn't weigh down his people with meaningless laws that do not affect the heart. Instead, he gives commands that reveal to us the heart of God and direct our hearts to God in belief and love. Jesus offers us an easy yoke and a light burden. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Believers have overcome the world because they have been released from the enslavement to the world. And into the family of God. They have overcome the world because they are believers who have been born from above. They overcome the world because instead of seeking to carry out God's commandments by their own strength, they do so in faith. Now, what does all of this mean practically? It means that, we, it means that when we do find his commandments burden, burden. burdensome or heavy or provoking of anxiety, we should consider where we have placed our confidence. Means that we repent of the ways in which we have believed in something other than the sufficiency of Jesus. We repent of the ways in which we have sought to carry out his commandments apart from him or sought to manipulate instead of love. And we abide in him. 
It's chapter 1, verse 7, all over again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John Stott writes this, Confidence, confidence in the deity of Jesus is the one weapon against which neither the error nor the evil nor the force of the world can prevail. That is what repentant faith looks like. This is how John can write in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. God promises, promises us victory. And in this promise is great hope. Because this tells us that in every situation of suffering and sin, we can walk forward in faith. And we are guaranteed victory. Victory doesn't mean that we will be devoid of, of suffering or its consequences. But victory does mean that we will prevail. And so John ends these few verses with an astounding statement in chapter 5, verse 5. He says this, who is it, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What strikes me most is the word except. It tells us that victory is possible, but it is only found in the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There is in exclusivity to victory. That is our third point, the exclusivity of victory. This exclusivity to victory over the world is in dire contrast to the way humans operate. Worldly wisdom proclaims that with just enough work, with just enough ingenuity, with enough insight, with enough technological advances and cooperation, we can overcome the world that we can somehow progress to overcome the human condition and achieve the ideal society. Listen, as much as I would really like these vaccines, for example, to help us return to normal, I don't think we have ultimately overcome with the vaccines. Now, just to be clear, I think vaccines are a good thing and you should go get your COVID vaccine. But they will not solve all of humanity's problems. There will be more pandemics. There will always be sickness. There will always be suffering. And some element that is just not quite right. As much as I would like to think the recent verdict of Derek Chauvin will finally bring about equality, justice, racial reconciliation that we all long for, True victory won't be achieved this way. We won't somehow progress to an ideal society. As much as I would like to believe that the replacement of Supreme Court justices in the United States, for instance, will ultimately overcome the severe injustices of abortion, we would be foolish to think 
that the hearts of humankind can be turned by mere political means. No. John says that only those born of God will overcome the world. And this ought to give those who are born of him a lot of hope. (laughs) It gives us hope in our suffering, our disappointments, our uncertainties. We know and have the anchor that our faith is secure and that the actions of this faith, belief, love, obedience, are the hallmarks that we will overcome. And it also gives us hope in our sin. Recall 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. When John talked about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What he says here in chapter 5, verse 5, gives us hope. Because these things, sin, of, all, of which we all suffer, either our own sin or sin done to us, they no longer can make us stuck. There is a way out. And it is through repentant faith. It is through the power of God exhibited through belief, love, and obedience. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says this, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As I close, let me ask you this. Do you know this power? Have you been born of God? Do you know, do you know this Jesus, the incarnate Christ, the only begotten Son of God who came to die for your sin, that you may be born of God into a new family? Do you resonate with the confident faith that I talk about that sustains you through the trials of life? Do you know this integrated, intricately woven faith that works itself out both horizontally, both vertically and horizontally? Owa tagu siam. By now, you've probably figured out that my cousin Liz was trying to get me to say, Oh, what a goose I am. Silly, silly childhood games indeed. Maybe in light of what John says here, we ought to say, Oh, what a child of God I am. And for that, we can give him praise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for eyewitnesses to the cross and resurrection, as John is for us. Thank you that these words have been written, that we might read them and believe. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you for this new birth that is not just an individual thing, but that we were born into a new family. So help us, Lord, to really understand the how belief and love and obedience are so intricately woven together. And may we be a people that walk humbly in faith, exhibiting 
this integral part of our faith as we as we confess our faith in Jesus, as we love you, and as we love our brothers and sisters, that the world may know indeed that that we have overcome, that we are the only way to victory. That Jesus, belief in Jesus, is the only way that we might overcome all of the problems that this world faces. Father, we pray for much grace in the months ahead and the year ahead at Christ City Kits as we seek to live this out in community, amongst the brothers and sisters in, in Christ, in our own families, with our own spouses. Give us much grace to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.